We're talking about the assurance of the Holy Spirit today, about how God seals us as his children through the Holy Spirit. And some of you may remember that years ago I talked about my oldest daughter, Amanda, who now works at my home church in Santa Barbara with junior hires, a real blessing. My oldest daughter, Amanda, we call her Mandy, she, when she was really young, had tremendous fears and anxiety, crippling fears and anxiety. And I remember one night when she was having a particularly hard time falling asleep, had a lot of things in her mind, just a lot of fears. And I remember sharing with her the truth of John chapter 10, where Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand because my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. And I tried to impress upon my young impressionable daughter that it was as if Jesus Christ held her firmly within his hand. And then around the hand of Jesus was the hand of God the Father. And it was impossible for anyone or anything to touch her. She was secure. She was safe. And that assurance and confidence filled her with the peace of mind to be able to fall asleep that night and really made a a difference in her life going forward. Um, It was interesting when I asked her this week, I said, can I share that story? Do I have your permission? Because I never share stories about my family without their permission. She said, absolutely. And she said, do you want the envelope? And here's what I did. I took her name, Amanda or Mandy, and I put it inside of a larger envelope, which says Jesus. And then I took the envelope named or titled Jesus, and I put it in an envelope called God the Father. And then I sealed that. And she kept that by her bed, and she still has it by her bed now, and she's 28 years old. This was probably when she was four. And I was amazed that she still had it. I said, that's awesome that you still have it, but I actually want to show the envelope, so I, I don't want to rip it open and take open the seal, but... What an awesome illustration and object lesson about how Jesus has us firmly in his grasp. And God the Father lovingly and securely has his son Christ in his grasp and in his hold. And nothing can touch us. Nothing is able to get through to us apart from his sovereign will and plan. And that's what we're talking about today is the assurance and the confidence that we are God's children because of the Holy Spirit that he's put inside of us. The Holy Spirit is the seal, the stamp, the sign, the pledge that we belong to God. I like what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. He says, It is God who enables us, along with you, to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, and he has identified us as his own, by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts as the first installment that guarantees everything he has promised us. God has made all of these wonderful promises to us, and the Holy Spirit is the pledge, the first installment, the seal of all of that goodness and grace and provision and abundance that God has promised us, that God will make good on his promise, and that he will fulfill all that he has said. 
The New American Standard says that God sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. There's an outline in your bulletin if you want to take notes today, and all of the points are filled in, so you don't have to fill those in, but you can take notes around those. And the first thing that I want to say today in our, in our study is that the Spirit assures us that we are loved. The Spirit assures us that we are loved. Romans 5.5 5 says, And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Hope does not disappoint because God has lavishly, richly poured out his goodness and love and abundance in our hearts, in our lives, through the Holy Spirit. That word poured out in the Greek original language literally means shed, spilled, or gushed out. And I think of the accounts of the crucifixion in the Gospels that talk about how Christ shed his blood, how his blood spilled out, how the centurion took the spear and out poured out, out gushed out water and blood. And all of the all of the language that speaks about what God did for us and that that love, that that grace that was poured out, that gushed out, was the love of Calvary and the love of atonement. Paul says in Titus chapter three, verse six, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out richly within us through Jesus Christ our Savior. That God has richly poured out upon us the love of His Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. God has lavished and loved upon us through the Holy Spirit that He's given us. He's poured that out. John the Apostle would write in 1 John chapter 4, verse, starting in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested or revealed in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another and God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. I love that. God has poured out his love within us through the Holy Spirit. And the invisible God becomes visible to the world and to those around us as we love. It's the sign that we are born again, that we are new creatures, that we have a new life in God because of that love. And God's love is revealed and manifested and seen through our love for one another. That's why Jesus said in the Gospels, they will know we are Christians by our love. By this will all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Well, the Spirit is the sign and the assurance that we are loved. I think about growing up in Santa Barbara as the oldest of three boys, and I think I've told you many times that uh, growing up in a Christian family and having wonderful parents and being blessed with so many gifts, I think the gift that stands out above and beyond everything else because it's so foundational was unconditional love. Um, 
My parents weren't perfect, but I never doubted for a moment growing up that I was loved. And I had parents that were very present in my life. Never missed one single sporting event that I did, baseball, football, volleyball, all the competitive things that I did, uh, every academic achievement, anything I did, they were there, they were present, and that love was there. And what that love did is it instilled in me a confidence and assurance that I could just seize life and, and achieve and, and ended up going on and achieving and doing a lot of things. And it wasn't because I was seeking to perform, to earn love and to be accepted and to be validated. It's because I already knew that those things were there. That was the rock and foundation of growing up in the Dupar family. And it gave me the confidence and the assurance to, to be all that I could be. I had a youth pastor friend once that that challenged his youth group by saying, what would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? What would you do if you knew that you couldn't fail? He went on to say that in Christ Jesus, there are no failures. There is no failure because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so how about starting to achieve and seize and take hold of the dreams and the aspirations and the things that you have been afraid to do your whole life and intimidated to do or whatever else because you know that in God there is no failure, that God empowers us and strengthens us to do all things in his name and for his glory. Unconditional love laid the foundation for me of assurance and confidence. I think about when I got engaged to my wife Denise as well. And there's something about courting someone and wooing someone and, and trusting that the Holy Spirit and God are involved in that process but that moment when you propose to your, your spouse-to-be and they accept, and you give them that engagement ring, that sign, that seal, that we are now in a relationship that's headed toward a lifetime commitment. And what's interesting about that is you do that, you pledge your life to that other person before you know what kind of a wife or a husband they're going to be. It's not like you say, okay, we're going to do this Think for five years, and if you turn out to be a good wife, then we'll continue this, and I'll pledge my undying love and devotion to you till death do us part, or if you turn out to be a good husband, then I will commit myself to you. No, we do that blindly going in on the basis of the relationship thus far and the love that we feel for each other and the guidance that we believe that God is orchestrating, and we enter into a lifetime commitment, and that that ring that we proudly wear is a a sign and a seal and a, uh, a testimony to everyone around us that we belong to someone else. And that's exactly what God has done through his Holy Spirit. He has given us the Holy Spirit, his very spirit to indwell us. The spirit that in the Old Testament just rested upon leaders and kings for the purpose of leadership or for ministry but could depart from them like it departed from King Saul when he grieved the Holy Spirit and grieved the Lord God, and God withdrew that blessing from Saul. That Spirit now indwells believers since Pentecost in the New Testament, that day when the Holy Spirit came down and danced like fire above the heads of the disciples and for the very first time indwelled them to never leave believers but always be present. And that's how the... That promise is fulfilled. Emmanuel, God with us. God now lives in us. Jesus said in John 14 that if anyone loves me, 
and loves my Father and keeps our commandments, my Father and I will make our house, our dwelling place, our abode inside of you. And that's exactly what Jesus meant at the beginning of John 14 when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And that's why he went to Calvary, to secure salvation for us, that he could enter our hearts and dwell in us and live in us. To sign the seal that we are loved. Well, secondly, the Spirit assures us that we are saved. The Spirit assures us and gives us confidence that we are saved. Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And to fully appreciate this, you have to understand that dating all the way back to the Old Testament, in the ancient world, every fact, every testimony was confirmed by the presence of two or three witnesses. If somebody came to Moses and had a complaint or a grievance against their brother or sister, it had to be validated in the presence of two or three other witnesses. And if somebody came forward with a charge, and that turned out to be a false or deceptive charge, and two or three other witnesses proved and validated that that was a false accusation, then whatever that person had accused the brother or sister of doing, that punishment would go to them instead. So if they're coming and saying, you know, I think that this person deserves death because they burned my house to the ground and, you know, did this to my kids and my possessions, and it turned out that that was false, then that person would be killed and charged because of the false testimony. But it was always validated in the presence of two or three witnesses. That was the court of law of the day. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any sin which he has committed. But on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And it's interesting if you understand that and read that throughout the Bible, because there are so many places in Scripture where God says, you are my witnesses. God is taking that same truth and saying, you are my witnesses that this is a fact, that this is true. I love the passage in Isaiah 43. You can turn there or listen. Isaiah 43, 7 to 13. God does this very thing. He says, bring all who claim me as their God. For I have made them for my glory, and that was I who created them. Bring out the people who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Gather the nations together. Assemble the peoples of the world. Which of their idols has ever foretold such things? Which can predict what will happen tomorrow? Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Who can verify that they spoke the truth? But you are my witnesses. O Israel, says the Lord, you are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, to believe in me, to understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been and there never will be. I, yes, I am the Lord and there is no other Savior. First I predicted your rescue, then I saved you and proclaimed it to the world No foreign God has ever done this. You are witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. There's that John 10 language again. No one can undo what I have done. 
So whenever God performed a miracle for his people or acted graciously in their behalf, he would say, you are my witnesses. You can testify that this happened, that this occurred. You can verify that as a fact. And that's why the Israelites would build monuments. The Ebenezer, when we sing, you know, uh, what's the hymn? I can't think of it right now. Come thou fount, thank you. Here I raise my Ebenezer. You know, somebody said once, what the heck is an Ebenezer? And don't be raising it in church. Well, you know, an Ebenezer is a, a memorial of stones, kind of a, as they would wander through the wilderness and come to a spot where they had been before to remember what God had done in the past. And we have a lot of Ebenezers today, whether that's journaling, whatever we do to signify something and remember something. Uh, one of the coolest things I read during my sabbatical was, um, there's a book that Jeff Sponseller gave me uh, a while back called Divine Opportunities. And this guy talks about a manna jar. And a manna jar is collecting significant things uh, or reminders of things that, uh, of what God did in our life. So that, for example, I, I might, you know, keep a Baskin Robbins little thing in my thing because of a, a powerful encounter I had with a homeless person when we first moved to Ventura to remember how God spoke and worked through that and through my daughter, and I'll never forget that. And just filling this jar with all the reminders of God's goodness and his miracles and, and all the things that he's done on our behalf that we might never forget that. And so God was constantly using the same terminology and the same idea of you are my witnesses. It's confirmed in the presence of two or three witnesses. And that's why Jesus repeated this very thing in Matthew 18. He said, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And this is why we always say at prayer meetings, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I also. And yet, the truth is, if there's one spirit and dwelled believer, God's there. It only takes one person to have God there because God indwells us. But the point isn't whether God's spirit is there or not. The point is whether it's that combined testimony. And that's why Jesus says, where two or three people are gathered together in my name and praying for something, I will honor that, I will bless that, I will confirm that if it's within my will, because that's how everything was verified. And you, you think of that as he goes on at his ascension in Acts, Acts chapter 1, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And you see that language carried throughout the New Testament until finally you get to the book of Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 11, verse 3, it talks about two anonymous witnesses who will wander around throughout the tribulation dressed in sackcloth and ashes, proclaiming and testifying to the truth of God and what he's done through his son, Jesus Christ. So we see throughout the whole Bible, the testimony of two or three witnesses confirms and seals the truth of something. And so understanding that, hear once again the words of Romans, beginning in Romans 8, verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And please understand, whenever it says that we are sons of God, it's not that the Bible isn't PC and it's not using inclusive language. 
The sons were the ones with the inheritance and all of the rights. And so it's saying as children of God, it's not being sexist and saying there are only sons and not daughters. No, it's saying that sons and daughters alike both inherit all of the goodness and riches of God. We have full rights and privileges. Then here's the kicker in verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And so hidden in that verse is that very same language. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have agreed and confirmed with our spirit that we are children of God. It's a confirmed fact. It's the sealed testimony of two or three witnesses. And this is four witnesses. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and our own spirit inside that says, Abba, Father, I belong to you. I am a child of God. I am loved by you. That's because of the seal of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul would write in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba, Father, I belong. I'm loved by you. I'm a child of God. Well, finally, point number three. The Spirit assures us that God is coming back for us. And that's my favorite. The Spirit assures us that God is coming back for us. The culmination of being loved, of being saved, is knowing that God is coming back to claim us, to redeem what is His. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete, kept, without blame, until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is inside every believer, keeping us, preserving us, purifying us, transforming us for that day, that moment of glory, when we see our Savior face to face again. When God comes back to redeem and to claim what is rightfully His. Scripture acknowledges that this world right now is in the power of the evil one. The power of Satan. He is having his way right now. He is running loose and wild. But this world and believers rightfully belong to God. And he's coming back someday to claim that, to redeem that. The Apostle Paul would say in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in God with the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge, as a wedding ring of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. The Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance, the proof that God is coming back for us to redeem and to claim what is rightfully His. Well, in a few moments, we're going to head into a time of communion and I'm going to ask for our elders to, to get ready to wait on this. We're actually going to have stations today, so someone's going to come and join me in the front. And the way this works, rather than traditional communion where we serve it to you out there, is that we're going to continue on in worship after I'm done preaching. And you can come up as you're ready and uh, just participate. And you take a bit of the bread and you rip it off, and then I'll hold the cup and you dip it in the cup, and then you partake that way, and I will pray God's blessing over you. But I like what was written in the Gospel of Luke, chapter two, uh, chapter 22, verse 20. It says, In the same way Christ took the cup, and after they had eaten, he said, This cup 
which is poured out, that same word again, spilled out, that cup which is gushing out for you, is the new covenant of my blood. Meaning that I have secured a new relationship with you through the cross. I'm headed to the cross, and that's where I will secure this new relationship. A relationship that is not based upon your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's unconditional and can't be broken. I love the old hymn writer Fanny Crosby. She lived from 1820 to 1915. And she spent the majority of her life blind because of a tragic accident at birth. And I read this week that toward the end of her life, so in the, between like 1910 and 1915, the doctor said to her that if she had been born at that time, the accident that she suffered actually could have been reversed through thir- surgery and she would have been able to see. And they expected her to be very bitter by that news. I mean, she wrote tons of hymns, some of the most beloved hymns that we sing today. And her response was really phenomenal. She was not bitter by the news that her, her blindness could have been reversed if she had been born in contemporary times. But she said, I'm actually okay with that because that means the very first thing that I will ever see is the face of my Savior. The first thing I will ever see is my Savior, Jesus Christ. And she wrote that hymn, Blessed Assurance. And we're going to actually sing that today. I'm going to invite the worship team back up right now as we, as we close. But I want to go through the words, the lyrics of this hymn, because it is such the perfect seal and complement of everything we talked about today. Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine. And I would ask, is he yours today? Have you made Jesus your own? Not your pastor or your church's savior, not the savior of your parents or of anyone else, but your personal savior. Have you made him your own through faith and repentance? Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Through the Holy Spirit, we have a preview, a taste a foretaste of all the glory to come. Heir of salvation, purchase of God. God is the one who purchased us through the precious blood of His only Son, Jesus Christ. He's done all the work already. Born of His Spirit, washed of His blood. We are now children of God, born into a new relationship through the Spirit, washed of our sins, forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus at Calvary. Then the chorus, this is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. Angels descending bring from above. Echoes of mercy, whispers of love. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Then that last verse, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. Watching and waiting, looking above. Why? Because he's coming back. He's coming back for us. And we know that because his spirit indwells us as the pledge, as the wedding ring that he's coming to claim his bride. Filled with his goodness. Lost in his love. I love that. 
When's the last time you just were lost in the love of your Savior? Where you were just swept up into the intimate embrace of the one who created you, the one who redeemed you. Folks, that's what it's all about. It's not about just reading the Bible and knowing the Bible. It's about living a closer, more intimate relationship with the Lord. It's one of the things I was challenged with on my sabbatical is that, you know, I, from now until the day that I die, I don't really need to know more Scripture, although I'm going to continue reading my Bible every day and memorizing as much as I can, putting it in my heart and my mind. But I need to live it out. And the proof that I am that I know Scripture and that it means something to me is if it draws me closer to Him. If I, if I hide Scripture in my heart and my mind and it makes no difference in my, in my relationship with Him, my intimacy with Him, what is the good? That's exactly what Jesus accused the religious leaders of His day of. You search the Scriptures because you believe that in them are the keys to eternal life, and yet you refuse to come to Me in order that you might have life. That's the whole point. Coming to God through Jesus that you might have life. If you've never received Christ as your personal Savior, please know that that's a prerequisite to partaking of communion. Because communion is a sign that you are His. It's a free gift. You don't have to earn it. There's nothing special you have to do except confess your sins and acknowledge that we are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God except through Him. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you acknowledge that, and you, you confess your need for Christ as your Savior, and you acknowledge what He did on the cross as paying that once and for all payment for your sins, then... Scripture says, John chapter 1, verse 12, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Paul would say in Romans 10, For we confess with the mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's what it means. And so if you do that right now, if you, if you believe that and you want to invite him in and start that relationship, you can do that right now, right where you're at, and you can partake today and celebrate that together. But I'm going to ask you to to go into a time of prayer. I'm going to lead us into a time of prayer. And then we're going to wait upon you here as they continue in worship. And we invite you to come and partake. Father God, we thank you for reminding us of the fact that we are your children through grace. Through a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ, and all that he did on our behalf. And as we participate in communion today, as we take of the, the bread and the cup, We're reminded that your blood was spilled out on our behalf. That God made you to be our sin. That through you, we might become the righteousness of God. That you have separated our sin as far as the east is from the west. You have washed us completely. We are whiter than snow now. And so we thank you that we approach this table today. We partake of this, not dressed in our own righteousness, but dressed in in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Come in now and meet us during this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.